You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea, where we explore the intersection of innovation and cybersecurity. I'm your host, Dan Johnson. From the front lines of digital defense to groundbreaking advancements shaping our digital future, we will bring you the latest insights, expert interviews, and captivating stories to stay one step ahead. Today, I'm joined by Jenny Radcliffe, better known in some circles as the People Hacker. Jenny is an ethical social engineer, a people hacker, hired to smash security measures using psychology, carn artistry, subliminal linguistics, cunning, and guile. Jenny has led simulated cyber criminal attacks on businesses of all types and sizes, running crews with varied expertise and experience to help secure client sites and information from malicious attacks. She is the go-to expert on the human element of security, scams, and social engineering, and is also host of the award-winning podcast, The Human Factor. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea, Jenny. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Jenny, you have this really fascinating life and career, and I've been looking forward to our conversation for quite a while. And we are going to dig into some specific experiences, the jobs, the cons that you've run. But before we get there, I want to zoom out and give our audience the big picture. You are an ethical hacker, you're a social engineer, and you've helped organizations secure their sites, their information, and their people. But most social engineers don't necessarily have the best intent. There are many that are just playing criminals. So can you start by talking, you know, a layperson's terms, right? Someone who's not a security professional, the description of a social engineer, an ethical hacker, and tell us how you found your way into this interesting career onto the ethical side of hacking and the ethical side of social engineering. Yeah, I mean, you know, people hacker is still a hacker, right? And I think people always think of hackers. We use that term interchangeably with criminal a lot of the time, and that's not always the case. As you say, you know, ethical hackers play a huge part in defense. And social engineering is really, it's another kind of misnomer for people because what it does is it tests security systems without using technology. Okay, or rather kind of aligned with technology. So I'm all about working on psychology of what people think and what we can get people to do, what we can persuade, manipulate people to do. And that always sounds very negative, but I always say to people, think of it kind of like a fire test, you know, like a fire drill, sort of a cross between that and, and a kind of really sort of scummy version of Ocean's Eleven, where not everyone's quite that good looking. But And so, yes, yeah, so that's what we do. So I'm hired by organizations and high net worth individuals to attempt to break their security through psychology, essentially, through, through conversation, through sort of human uh, characteristics. And I do that in two ways. I specialize in two things. The first is the script for things like phishing emails, text messages, uh, social media approaches, and all the research behind that. But also what I'm really known for and what my book was all about was, because this is the thing people are interested in, is physical infiltrations. So that's when a client wants us to actually get onto that site 
get through any security measures that are protecting an actual physical site and use that as a security test, you know, see where the vulnerabilities are. Now, there's no real career path into that, even now in security. There is still very little formal training, especially on my type of social engineering. So there are people who are social engineers, but it's kind of a side dish to a more technical expertise. But I started out by accident, really. I was grew up in kind of quite a testing environment, if you like. It was a time when there was a lot of crime and unemployment where I lived. And I hung out with my family, uh, some cousins of mine. We started out looking at empty buildings near where we lived and did a lot of that. We sort of got into those as a, when I was a kid. And most of that was uh, completely harmless, although I do talk about a few things in the book that wasn't so harmless. But as that grew on, I managed to, we were asked to do that for people to be paid to do it, to check that, you know, if we could find a way into their home or into their workplace, then we could help protect that from people who have malintent. And that's really how it grew. And then as cyber grew alongside it, we realised that not all infiltrations needed to be physical, but that most jobs are a combination of psychology, online approaches and physical infiltration work. Okay, that's um, really, really fascinating. And I want to talk more as we go through this about the things you've seen and, you know, the experiences you documented in your book. One of the things I also want to talk about is that, you know, there's all types of social engineers, right? There was a really interesting Harvard business case study talking about how the 9-11 attacks in the United States were basically social engineering attacks. And there's, you know, romantic social engineers that craft relationships with their targets. Some of these things have even been glamorized, which isn't fantastic. Fantastic when we when we in the popular media make it look like it's something that we should aspire to in some of the things that we've seen in Tinder Swindler and Inventing Anna. But no matter the type of social engineer there is, they all seem to have common foundational motivations. There's go-to strategies, there's certain tactics. Can you talk us through some of those common strategies and tactics that social engineers deploy and also how you use them in your own work, but also how your average person can recognize and avoid them? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Firstly, I have absolutely nothing but condemnation for kind of making heroes of criminals you know i watch programs like inventing anna and it's a great show you know it, it's it's interesting it's entertaining but we have to be very careful i think in popular culture of making heroes of people who are criminals and i think we do that quite a lot in society so i'm just going to say that first off in terms of the strategies that we use social engineers People who are, you know, scammers and fraudsters tend to zoom in on the human characteristics. So I often say at the start of a keynote, we weaponize human emotion and characteristics and mistakes. And that's really what happens. So what we would look at doing is looking at what motivates people. What do people care about? What blindsides someone into ignoring procedure, ignoring the rules, going around what they're supposed to do in terms of operations? And the sorts of things that really kind of chime with everyone because they are partly what makes us human are things like ego, uh, emotion, convenience, 
And those are really the kind of what we play to as social engineers. So an example would be if we were looking at a job on a physical site, most sites these days have very specific uh, security guidelines around what entrances and exits people use and under what circumstances, what routes people are allowed to take around buildings and sites. And what we watch for is the people who actually work for the company ignoring those because they they take too long or because they're in a, a rush. You know, they, they want to sort of trade convenience for security. So, so those are the sort of the types of things. I mean, I mentioned ego there and, and you asked me to sort of give you some idea of the types of things that we would use. And as I say, I mentioned in my book a little bit, but like the, the there's times when ego is the only thing that works. You know, sometimes people are cautious about security measures online they're cautious about what they give away but we found with one particular client whose team had asked us to test him specifically that when we said you know oh well we're working for an online magazine and we really want to feature you and and take some pictures of you and talk about your work and your charities and your causes that that's enough to convince that person so so i think really what you're looking at is there isn't a common strategy or tactic. It's just that we all have certain things in common. What we're motivated, what really gets you out of bed every morning or gets you online every morning, that's different for everyone, but everyone has something. And that's really how social engineering works. It's looking for the gaps in routine, the gaps in judgment, and the things that really make people do what someone asks them to do or do what they feel is the best thing to do, even if that's not in their interest. I think that that urgency and that ego are really important to emphasize to people that if you're being asked to do things, and by the way, I I think every day this week, I've received a social engineer scam in my um, email or phishing, phishing slash social engineering related to an IRS audit, right? A tax audit. Oh, you need to reply now. And, you know, and you owe a lot of money and all of those things, right? Yeah. I mean, we have them in the UK this time of year from our IRS, which is called HMRC. And, you know, people are quite frightened about being late. And there's a fine if you're late, if it's a genuine contact. There's fines and and people want to do the right thing. So that's a mixture of fear, which is one of the emotions, one of the seven big emotions that we use, but also urgency. And I've spoken many times about red flags. I speak about that all the time whenever I'm interviewed or talking to, to, to people or audiences. You know, and I say, I say it's emotional stories, emotional content, something that makes you feel different, you know, that takes you out of that kind of flat line of just neutral and takes it up a notch. So maybe, you know, maybe it's fear. Oh, you you know, you've you haven't completed this form or you you know, you've got a, a speeding or a traffic offense. But if you pay it quickly, then this problem kind of goes away or diminishes. And it's that idea of when we get in that emotional state, what the brain often wants to do is act. But it's not necessarily act in the right way. It's just something. There's this call to action. And what social engineers will do is they'll give someone a situation, give you a reason uh, to want to get out of that situation, right? Even if it's hopeful, even in the case of like a romance scammer, say it's it's things like well you know i need to come off this platform and talk to you privately away from the app 
because I, I, you know, I'm into you so much and I'm sure this is going to be a deep relationship. So there's like this emotional narrative that goes on, emotional content that will be a story. And then what the scammer slash social engineer will do is give you the next step. And because people want to move forward, they want to move out of any kind of, you know, if it's a negative situation, we want to move out of that situation. If it's a positive situation, we want that to remain or escalate. And so social engineers will always, always use that kind of tendency for humans to try and hook people. And whether that's phishing or smishing or quishing, uh, which is the QR code version, we have this whole lexicon, don't we, insecurity. <laughs> no matter what it is, it's not really the method that you're approached. It's that emotional content story, usually urgent, or it's helpful if it's an urgent request. And then there's that call to action. If you do this, then this will happen. Or more specifically, if you do not do this, then these are the consequences. Uh, yeah, and I think that, you know, um, and I failed to mention my my husband, this has been a really long time ago, he received the phone call, like a voice phone call from, you know, the quote unquote IRS. And he's like, honey, I have to go to such and such and I have to pay. I said, do not do any of that. Yeah. I said, yeah. you know, that's a it's it's a vishing, you know, attack yeah. and you just don't do any of that. So so it's really interesting that these actors will give you that, you know, you're going to go to jail is a big motivation for somebody to want to do something to avoid losing their freedom. Right. Right. Because we react to that as humans. Of course you do. And they know that not everybody realizes. Hang on. Can I verify this? This is something that sounds so awful that I'm acting without considering if it's true, for sure. Yeah, exactly. Well, let, let's change just a little, a, a slight change, of course, and talk about um, you've done a lot of work breaking the physical security programs of companies. Do you find that the strategies and tactics used in the physical world are the same as the cyber world? And do cyber social engineers and criminals have a distinctly unique approach? No, you know, not on my side of it. Like the tactics are the same. You know, it's still always kind of looking for that human connection, looking to sort of try and exploit what someone would forget. I mean, we, we look at that, we look at the system holistically. Okay. So it's not that you can actually, in many ways, separate the physical and the cyber when it comes to attack. I think that's something that the security industry do a lot. And from a criminal perspective, and, you know, again, I'm ethical, but I wear a criminal hat. We just look at the system holistically. So, for example, I've never been a technical hacker. I have lots of friends who are brilliant hackers, technically, and they've taught me one or two things. But I've never looked at it that way. However, of course, as soon as cyber comes online and systems are relying more and more on um, technology, we just incorporate that into the mix. I think that um, it's the same. It's still just looking for a weakness. And bear in mind, if we were to find a weakness in a building and didn't have to engage with a human, we'd still exploit it, right? If we were to look at a system, so you look at a target holistically like a system. If we were to look at that system and find the biggest weaknesses were online, then we go there, right? So it's not about what kind of area of expertise we have necessarily or what silo we, we kind of would slot into. It's about the target. And I think the reason 
that I kind of was so popular in my job and got so much work was because we looked at it that way. I looked at the whole thing and just looked for a chink in that armour. It's just that my expertise was finding the, the human gap. And as it turns out, that tends to be ever present and one of the, you know, the, the sort of vulnerabilities that most most firms have and most systems have. But we will, just like a criminal, we'll find any way in and we'll find the easiest way in. So it doesn't differ necessarily. It, it's more about looking for a vulnerability, finding a way to exploit it. You know, the interesting thing is I have a, um, a another friend who does this type of work and they, they comment to me, they're, 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 my, they're my age, so you know, a little bit older, right? <laughs> a little bit more in longer term in career. And they said when they were younger, they would carry around a, a notepad and a pen and be walking the hallways of buildings looking like they're doing something official, like making notes about things, looking at offices. And people would ask them, oh, I'm, I'm working on the relocation or, or some silly statement. Now they carry around like an iPad and do the same type of thing, right? They carry around a tablet yeah. and they rarely get asked. They rarely get stopped. People just don't pay attention. <laughs> well, if you look busy and you don't seem to be an immediate threat, and that's very colored by cultural images and rules and a lot of which is very questionable but if you if you can look official you look busy you don't look like a threat to whatever that person perceives a threat to be what you have to understand this is where the kind of sociology of it comes in is that most people just want to get on with their day right they're busy um, they've got their own stuff to deal with and the last thing they need is to just interrupt somebody who doesn't seem like they're causing a problem Anyway, now that's not always true in every culture, but it's true in a lot of work cultures and you know business culture. And that's really what happens. And yeah, I've relied on that exact thing that he's saying so many times. It's just there's someone who's obviously busy. They've got something to do. They're not sort of causing a problem that I can see. I'm just going to carry on and get on with my day. You know, I'm going to get back to my. I'm going to get my coffee, get back to my desk, and carry on with whatever task I've got to finish. That reliance on this isn't my problem is very dangerous. That's part of what we need to kind of get into people's heads is it's okay to ask. Because just like online with, say, someone pretending to be a bank, the real bank doesn't care if you ask 10 times about security because they want that, right? But a scammer's going to care. And I do care if someone stops me and starts talking to me too much. Obviously, I'm skilled at that conversation management by now, but I don't want to be in conversation with someone if I can not be, right? Yeah, it, it's a good tip for people too. If someone starts asking you a lot of questions like, and they continue to ask, it, it's someone you don't know, right? And they're just approaching you and asking you questions. You, you have no um, obligation to answer and you should probably start asking your own questions back. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that I talk about in Romance Scams. You mentioned a Tinder swindler. And I hate the term romance and I hate the term scams because they've kind of minimised the impact of these things. But we know what we mean. But um, that's what you're trying to do. And one of the things I say to people is if you have a conversation and you find that you are speaking 80% of the time and that person is speaking kind of 20% of the time and you're giving away a lot of information, kind of being prompted um, to give more information about yourself. If you were talking about you the entire time, you need to kind of just raise your caution level up a little bit because normal natural conversation 
doesn't always go that way. And, and, and it's about that awareness of the way people operate that A, needs to be noted by all of us um, in terms of security culture, but B, is what social engineers and criminals rely on. We want the target to talk, right? Because just like your friend with the notepad or the iPad, everything is being logged and noted, if not for use in that conversation, but for the future, which is very sinister, I realise. <laughs> it, it sounds very sinister, but I don't think that, you know, people realise how much is happening around them. To your point, everyone's just trying to get through their day. That's human nature, right? You're just trying to get through your day. So you've led... Uh, and I know you have confidentiality agreements, so let's talk at a general level, but you've led some incredible social engineering and hacking jobs against some really well-sophisticated and well-funded programs. Can you tell us anything about some of the more interesting jobs you've done? And I'd love to hear about some of the surprises you found al along the way. Were these programs that were allegedly sophisticated easier to break than you first thought they would be? There's a lot of sort of in that. Let's unpack it a little bit. So every job is interesting in my job. I'm a paid burglar. Right. So there's no such thing as a as a regular day. <laughs> um, they're all interested in different ways. And it's so funny because I do a lot of interviews and it's so and you've said the word interesting. So that lets me pick my most sort of interesting jobs. But I'm always being asked like what was the most dangerous? Was that you know, what was there anything that was took you by surprise, I suppose. So let's just like a standard job would be that we would, I would have a small crew with me of specialists. So sometimes it's just me, a driver, and the office backing me up, okay? And I will be inside a building uh, or trying to get inside a building and, and, you know, with whatever kind of pretext we've decided on. And then once I'm in that building, all our research, we do a lot of OSINT or open source intelligence, we do a lot of surveillance so that I kind of have an idea of what's normal in that building. And then you go in and you meet people. And I think it was Mike Tyson who said, we all have a plan till we're punched in the face, right? And then you meet a person and everything sometimes changes. And actually, it's a key skill in social engineering to be able to adapt tactically to whatever happens. So, you know, there's no such thing as a standard day. I'm always in an office without permission or in a building without permission or in some you know, situation without permission. And that's never anything other than interesting. But I mean, to your question specifically, I thought I looked at this and I was thinking, what can I, what can I tell you about? So I'll tell you about two jobs. One time I had a crew and we were asked to test a big mall over here in the UK. So we call it a shopping centre. You guys call it a mall, right? And um, we'd done so much research on, honestly, we'd looked at it for a long time. Huge, huge site. To give you an idea of how big this place is, um, we knew that at any given point, there was at least 50 security staff, that's five zero, on site, right? So all the different restaurants, shops, uh, cinemas, all this type of thing. So we'd really looked into the routines, the traffic, the tech, the entry points. I had a team of six. So some sort of students who were there just to kind of be uh, decoys and distractions and things. And then there was a core team of me and a technical specialist. We had specific uniforms on for pretext. We had a specific story and we had backup plans. We go on the site we know where the office is, which is our main target. They're kind of sock, their secure area. Walk in, the doors open. Nobody's there. <laughs> nobody's in the office. Nobody's anywhere. Walk in, get what we were asked to get uh, without any incident at all. So we had passes. They worked. Everything worked. 
And my whole team was devastated because I say, okay, that's finished now. We exit, right? And, and especially the students were kind of like, but we really want to practice, you know? We want to talk to people and be our characters. And they wanted obstacles and there wasn't any. And I always say that job first because we just walk out and that's it. It's finished in like 20 minutes. We're done. Even though there should have been massive amounts of interference and we should have needed our plans. And it was done. And and that's, you know, I say that one because then it shows you how the next one can go so wrong. Because things don't go to plan always. Um, and I've, I've had a job, we got a job and it was in an amusement park. Um, you, I'm not sure if, if in the States that's what you call it. We do. Kind of like They're, you yeah. call it, right? Yeah. And what had happened with them is they had been a target. They'd been threat to life on this park. They'd been threatened with, I mean, terrorist activity, really. I mean, that's the best way of putting it. Uh, we, they knew they were a target. They were a target and had been identified as such, not just by what had been sent to them, but also by our kind of law enforcement intelligence services as this is going to be a target. And so they asked, they'd done a lot of tests, but they asked me to, to go along with my crew. And we did go. And so you can imagine it's nighttime. It's an amusement park, which is eerie and spooky anyway. <laughs> And it's cold and it's horrible. And I'm there. And I didn't have a big team with me this time because it should be straightforward, right? There's no one on site. We can get over fences. We can get through gates. It's really just a case of us documenting what is on site. But we go in, we walk around, roller coasters, everything's all kind of stopped in the middle of the night. And I sort of lost track of the rest of the crew. And my team was kind of all over the place just because it was so big and, and we, we weren't really needing to stay in too much communication on the ground because, I mean, there was no one there, except there was people there. <laughs> so the guys had all run off and they were doing their thing and we were ready to kind of abort. I look at my phone, my phone's out of charge. And I, that never happens, right? My phone is always charged. I always have water. And I always have my phone fully charged, but it's out of charge for whatever reason. Can't get the phone to go. And then I hear the gate. And what I hear, and I'm not going to say the exact words, but I hear the guard give the command to the dog, to dogs, to, to go and find someone, right? So now I know that there are at least two security guards, that they definitely know that we're on site, that someone is on site, and they've got guard dogs running around this fairground. I am not a fan of doing jobs where there are guard dogs involved. In fact, I charge you about 10% more if you've got guard dogs going to chase me. And it was a case of what you do. And I thought, well, there's only one thing I can do, and I had to hide. And I hid inside what we call a ghost train, right? You, you guys call it a ghost train? I hid inside the little booth where you go and you pay to go on the ride, and then, I, and then the dogs are running around and I move from there into the actual ghost train. And that those type of places, if we go on during the day, it's, it's, it's kind of, or with your friends and family, whatever, it's kind of funny. It's a bit cheesy, isn't it? You've got skeletons. It's like Halloween, you know, it's like going into a store at Halloween. But I tell you, when you're on your own at night and there's dogs, it's, um, it's a lot less funny. So you can see it's like, and they didn't find me. But they nearly found me. And I was lying there for a very long time looking at like plastic skeletons and 
stuff like that. So yeah, there's a lot goes on, I guess. So that was interesting. <laughs> I can't even imagine. I, I would not be a fan of doing a job. I mean, I, I have um, four rescue pups, by the way, but I would not be a fan of doing dogs. a job. No, no, I know. Doing a job where there's guard dogs, I mean, because they're trained in a very specific way. So congratulations for having the bravery to do that. I don't think I would do well, it. Well, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to do yeah. you know, you, you, You're in it, aren't you? By the time it happens, by the time you kind of realize what's going on, it's too late is the problem. And we had not scoped that. That they'd be done. Well, I say that we knew that they used them, but this is a, a pen test, right? This is a penetration test, and and the dog should not be part of that, right? But they are, yeah. And and, and so quickly realised that you know whatever parameters we agree with the client had not been translated through. Is probably the best way of putting it. But you know, I love dogs. It's just I don't like them. Guard dogs going to bite me. But I'll tell you something, Anne. No. So after that, I have a contact who was former military. And I was telling him about this. And he said, oh, he said, you know, what you need to do, he said, there's a way that you can stop that. And he told me how to train a guard dog, right? So he said, right, I'm going to train you like as if you're a guard dog. I'm going to tell you all the commands. I'm going to tell you how it works, how we train them. And I'm going to give you some secrets. And he gave me some secrets as to the command to stop. And he told me to always take some um, dog biscuits and a tennis ball. And honestly, it's, it shouldn't work every time. He didn't say to rely on it, but it works enough times that I always have those on me. If there's even the slimmest chance that I'm going to be chased <laughs> <laughs> by a guard dog. I was very grateful to him for giving me those tips because that, that you see, that frightens me more than half the situations I'm in normally. Right. That things like that are more and you say interesting, like that's it's funny when I look back and I think of how awful some of those, you know, because these are skeletons in a ghost yeah. train, right? It's plastic, it's got a wig on. It wasn't even a, it wasn't Disneyland or something where you'd expect everything to be, you know, amazing, the best, you know, best sort of theme park in the world. It was a little, you know, local kind of theme park. So it was cheesy. Nothing's cheesy at night, right? Everything kind of changes in those circumstances. Yeah, no. Well, it becomes more scary. But let's talk about culture for a minute. Uh -huh. You talk a lot about the culture. Microsoft, we talk about our culture of security, right? And how we need to fortify, you know, security programs, whether they're physical security programs or cybersecurity programs. I love your perspective on how to build a security culture and what are common characteristics of organizations that have done it really well. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, again, I try and reduce these things to the simplest terms. And the organizations that do this well do a couple of things. One of the things that they do is that they give people lots of ways to access learning, right? So one of the things that really annoys me at, the, at, the, at this moment is, is the fact that in the awareness space, a lot of companies talk about gamification and how great gamification is and that it replaces boring powerpoints or something and that gamification can be great right for certain people certain people if you give them gamify something like phishing awareness then certain people will love that and they to the point where they're obsessed with it you know and they like, have worked with one company and they had to stop employees playing this phishing game because they weren't getting the work done type of thing some people love that. 
other people hate that, right? So, and a lot of people in, in the security industry are not neurotypical. I'm around a lot of neuroatypical people, if you like. And, and the competition element of it, the noise of it, the distraction doesn't suit them. So the companies that are successful allow people to learn in a variety of ways. Some people like a PowerPoint. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Some people actually like to read an article. Oh my goodness, can you imagine? Imagine having the attention span to read a white paper. But I have clients who are legal or financial CEOs, directors, VPs. They're not going to play a game involving fish, you know, phishing emails, clicking on a little fish that says, oh, I'm a phishing email. You know what I mean? You've got to give people lots of different ways to access the information and you have to do it regularly and you have to do it repeatedly, right? And and the way to stop people being bored of that is to give them lots of different routes to the learning. Even without a big budget, you can do that. You just need to be imaginative. So that's the first thing. The second thing that's really important in culture is the culture has got to come from everyone. And to do that, we need to hand the conversation back to people who do not do security every day as part of their job. If we as security people keep telling people what they should do, keep telling them what is good for them, then it always is separate to to how they live, if you like. What we need to do is explain to people what the risks are tell them a little bit about how they can protect themselves, make it easy for them to do the right thing, okay? Because if you make it difficult, just like when I speak about physical premises, if you make it difficult and cumbersome to to, to take the secure route, then everyone will find the way around it. It's kind of human nature. We solve the problem. We satisfy our immediate need. So we make it easy for them to do the right thing. But more importantly, the conversation goes back to the rest of the team. And the thing is, if security cannot be made interesting, there is almost no hope. Because security should be, to people who are not in it, fairly exciting, right? Because we're in an industry with villains and and plots and cyberspace and weaponization and a million things and money and technology. If we can't afford to let that be boring. And the way to stop it is to say to people who are not in the industry, this week, we're going to have, a, you know, whatever meeting you have, it's your job to come and tell us a one minute security story, something that, that you've found, maybe something on the news, maybe you've had a phishing attempt, maybe you've had the IRS fish. And that person's nominated to just talk about it. Just say, you know, I got this email, thought that it was fine. And then my partner said it wasn't, or I got this email and I thought that's definitely a fish. And anyway, it wasn't, you know, why did I think that? You have to hand this conversation back to people. If you don't, we are always preaching and people will eventually just hear white noise, you know? So make it exciting, make it accessible, make it easy and hand it back. That's what I will say. I think those are really, really great tips. And the thing about not talking in our security vernacular, making it accessible, and also knowing your audience, right? I'm also one of those people who's not going to play a gamified experience, but I will read a white paper. Yeah, exactly. Um, Because that's part part of my job. Well, I don't Um, mind gamification, but yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
We've talked a lot about individuals and things to look out for, but do you have any other tips before we move into uh, our typical close? Anything else for people as an individual, not necessarily a company that they should be looking out for? Just out of context things, you know, it's like I always say emotion, urgency, call to action, money. But really the thing is, if, if something is just be, if you're being asked to do something that's just not usual, especially if it's emotional, especially if it's about money or getting around procedure, just be more suspicious. And, you know, this is a horrible thing because people say, oh, but, but it's awful that we have to be suspicious. You sound paranoid, but, you know, it, it kind of takes some of the enjoyment out of life. And the truth is we need to be honest with people. Yes, it does. It does stop us all enjoying life. You know, if if scammers and social engineers, malicious social engineers and criminals were not present, the world would be a much happier, more harmonious place. But I'm sick and tired of this industry being so afraid of frightening people that we stop being direct. Treat them like grown-ups, you know, yeah. and, and say if something feels off, check it before you click. And that does mean, unfortunately that we've got to be more suspicious than we'd like. That is that is reality. That is the life. There's a lot of things trying to help, there to help. There's a technology and people trying to help you. But the bottom line is we do need to be more suspicious. So I, I agree, by the way, and I think we need to stop sugarcoating it and we need to treat, to your point, treat people like they are adults. Let's get to the point where we're getting close to wrapping up, and I've loved having you on. We could talk for hours, but I know you're super busy. You have a lot going on with your ethical hacking. You have a podcast. You have a TV host, etc. So can you share a little bit of some of the stuff you're working on right now? Sure. So my book, People Hacker, is not yet available in the U.S. It will be soon. It's a, It's come out. It's done very well in the U.K., it's a memoir. So it's a collection of stories about how I got into the job and some of the jobs I did. So some of them are funny, some are dangerous, different sectors, different circumstances. If you're in security and interested in social engineering, I hope that you would like that book. That book was also picked up by, well, Hollywood. I feel silly saying that, but it was. And that's going to be made into a major TV show in the near future. That's not just picked up and optioned. It's going to be made into a TV show. But also, I'm working with TV show here in the UK. So we have a morning show in the UK, uh, you know, daytime TV thing. And it's called This Morning. And I work on that show most weeks. And what's wonderful, Anne, about it is I have five minutes usually to give quick fire security tips to an audience of people who don't get them a lot of the time. And, you know, one week it'll be about, you know, uh, property scams or motor scams or something like that. And the next week it'll be about something else. Recently, I was in the studio with like famous people in and out of other offices and rooms all around you. And I was there because there was a group of Taylor Swift super fans who I believe are called Swifties and they were trying to buy tickets for a concert that Taylor Swift has given in the UK and I was there to help them do that safely and securely so you can imagine it's absolutely chaotic I'm used to these very serious security situations this type of interview in our industry and instead I'm on live television to a million people and more sort of saying okay don't give your financial details out <laughs> You know, try, don't let them persuade you. Don't buy a sob story. And then they'll be like, that's fine. Thank you, Jenny. And now over to, you know, the chef who's going to tell you about the best use of 
pasta this week. So it's kind of like the most crazy, strange environment. And it's weird because I get recognised on, on, on the train and in airports and things now. But people normally say, thank you for the advice. I didn't know that. And I think that's one of the most gratifying things that I work on is that just people in the street who really don't know about this, they don't know what a VPN is or or anything about passwords or anything, or just getting that five minutes of me hectically shouting as much information as I can every Monday. And that's, I never thought that would happen to me and I'm sure it won't last, but while it does, I'm, I'm very happy. Well, and you're, you're, you're doing a service and helping, you know, helping. And that that brings me to optimism, right? I'm always optimistic because I do believe as cyber defenders, mm -hmm. for everything we see in the news, you know, there's a thousand attacks we stop. What are you optimistic about in the future of defense of our digital world? I tell you, right, I find it hard to be optimistic sometimes. I see so many, I see so much misery and so many scams. And on the serious side of what I do, the side that I don't talk that much about, sometimes it's it's beyond miserable. What makes me optimistic is the people coming into the industry, is young people. Because when you see, when you give a talk to a group of school kids, which I do quite often, or you give a talk to students at college, or, or you meet someone young just coming into the industry, or even someone who's more senior, who's changing jobs. I was speaking to a lady in her 60s earlier today who's just decided to get into cybersecurity. That's what makes me optimistic because they have fresh eyes and they're, de they're determined to fight on the side of the angels. And because there is an unending supply of people prepared to do that, that's what makes me optimistic. The only way that we ever win is by being optimistic and not letting those criminals and malicious people get us all down and stop us fighting back. So that makes me optimistic endlessly. That That's incredible. I love that perspective. Jenny, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for making the time to join me today. It's been my pleasure, Anne. And many thanks to our audience for listening. Join us next time on Afternoon Cyber Tea. I invited Jenny Ragsliff to join me because she has such a fascinating and breadth career across social engineering and ethical hacking and breaking into organizations. Really great tips for both organizations and individuals on how to recognize, spot, and not respond to a social engineering attack. It's a fantastic episode and um, I look forward to everyone listening to it. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and senior security researcher, Thomas Rochia. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.